This evening, avian carnage in Bodega Bay. Young girl accuses priest mother of lewd acts with poultry in hell, and postman is unwitted accomplice in marital strife. Welcome to They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. Hello, thank you, 1940s announcer guy. Good evening, welcome to They Don't Make Up Like They Used To. My name is Tosin. You are listening to Sunshine Radio at St. Mary's Hospital on the Isle of Wight. Uh, with me in the studio, as always, is Sharon. Hello. Hello, Sharon. How are you doing? All right, thank you, Tos. How are you? Doing very well, doing very well. Now, usually we would have, like, Sean with us, although Sean is somewhere halfway around the world in Thailand at the moment, so, like, don't know what he's up to. He can tell us when he gets back next week. No, he's not. He's back in... Two weeks' time, isn't he? Two weeks' time, yeah. Yeah, he's back in two weeks' time. He's something of a traveller, is our Sean. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, hey, I am totally, f- I'm all for that. I'm actually having a plan of doing this show, like, you know, from different hospitals around the world. <laughs> <laughs> we could totally, oh, that would be awesome. All right, actually, depending on the hospital. But also, we would like to say hello to Jane Marriott, who we who I met earlier today in our pet ward, Alveston. So, Jane, thank you so much for talking to us. We will be getting around to your film. Um, she told us a story about one of the first, well, it was a twist on the first film she saw in the cinema, and she told us a little bit about that. I think it's pretty cool. And uh, you will be coming up second in the films that we talk about today, Jane. So thank you so much for joining us. And um, today, so Sharon came into the room, and Sharon came and just sort of like opened up with a bombshell, telling me that. This afternoon, it was announced that Harper Lee, who was the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, has died in at her home in America. Oh, look, Harper Lee. So she obviously famous for writing To Kill a Mockingbird, which was turned into, like, you know, the classic film. Yeah, classic film with Gregory Peck. Yeah, Gregory Peck. And also Robert Duvall. Yes, as Boo Radley. As Boo Radley. And also she released, uh, was it To Catch a Watch, to Go Set a Watchman. Go Set a Watchman, yeah. It was only last year yeah. that she'd revised it. And that was it was written before To Kill a Mockingbird, but it features like an earlier incarnation of the same characters. Yeah. And it was like an instant worldwide bestseller last yeah. year. It was like it was like the highest. It was the highest. It was the first book to get to number one on pre-sales. Pre-sales alone. Yeah, yes. On pre-sales alone. See, I haven't read it because yeah. I've read To Kill a Mockingbird, and I do like the film very much, To Kill a Mockingbird, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to add anything to that experience. From from so, what I've heard, from from people who are massive fans of To Kill a Mockingbird, they kind of think Go Set to Go Set a Watchman should never have been written. Yeah. <laughs> should, ne- should never have been released. <laughs> that other things people are like they say, well, this is there's a reason it was an early draft and that got turned into To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Mainly I think it's mainly about what happens with the character of Atticus Finch. Because she's she's written this character and when the way it was played with Gregory Peck, which apparently is quite um Yeah, she faithful. really liked it. Yeah, yeah faithful really faithful it. to the book. He he's he's topped the the list of there there was once a list of the like you know top heroes in cinema history and number one was Atticus Finch yeah number two was James Bond oh, wow, golly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> telling you telling you how high was hell and so he she, apparently in Ghost of Watchmen the character of Atticus Finch has changed so he isn't as upstanding and everything like that and he's a little bit of a bigot and racist yeah. so you don't want like that, that to happen to your favorite character do you no no that you feel like someone's just been yeah, that's just wrong. Yeah. But and I know that Harper Lee, I think I read a little bit about her obituary today. She said she so liked Gregory Peck in that role that she actually gave him her own father's watch as a thank you. Oh, wow. You. Oh, because, yeah, I guess Atticus was kind of based on her father. Of her father, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so, so yeah, big and, news today. Yeah, yeah, big news, big news. She's made. A, I think that's her main contribution, main cinematic contribution. And I know that also there were the films in Cold Blood and Capote. Well, no, the book in Cold Blood. Yeah, because she was a friend of Truma Capote, Capote. wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, and so she's she's played by Catherine Keener in the movie Capote because she she has that. But I think that that's. I'm actually sure of any other books she wrote, but. That, I think she's known. She was always known as like as like a one hit wonder almost. Like why why when they did release just set a watch me, people are like going no because her <laughs> you're one supposed work, to only have to do one thing. Yeah, just one thing. Your one work is your defining. If you make your if you're the, the one, but you do is one of the best in the world. Don't mess with that. Yeah, just stop. <laughs> just leave. Just it. go home. <laughs> Rest. You've done your work. Be what? Be like Emily Bronte. Just have the one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right oh but okay so harper lee um yeah rest in peace harper lee and thank you thank you for giving us um to kill a mockingbird i know it's uh, i still haven't read it because my it's my wife's favorite book and i tried to borrow her copy but it's just so heavily annotated all over yeah, the place that i that i can't i'm like because there's i was re- op- opening up one page early on in the book and it's saying something about scouts or something like that and she just has like a, there's just a biro and there's a mark saying ooh foreshadowing <laughs> yeah no 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 don't read like, that i'm like oh dear uh, it's like what no no i don't i can't read this copy i need to go i need to go find another copy to i only read. read it about two or three years ago quite recently really i bought the book 20 years ago yeah and i'd saved it it's one of those books i thought oh, i need to be ready to read this yeah and so i wasn't ready so i but when i did read it i thoroughly loved it but i loved the film and i didn't want to be have my because if you love a film so much sometimes you think don't read the book too close to watching the film. Yeah, yeah, because the one one will make the other one look bad. Yeah, you just yeah. they influence each other. So I yeah, I only read it quite recently, but yeah, she will be missed. Okay, um, yeah, rest in peace, Harper Lee. Now, also today we have one of the things we love on this show. I mean, we put up a Facebook page and all that kind of stuff, and we've asked people to give us their requests for what films we should talk about. In addition to people in the hospital telling us about stuff, and this week we received an email all the way from Auckland, New Zealand, of some a guy called David O'Rourke. Thank you so much, David. David. Uh, so he says, "Hi, Tosin. I just enjoyed your Picnic at Hanging Rock po- podcast." So this was when we spoke about the movie Picnic at Candy Rock, yeah. the Peter Weir movie, and this was with this is show fifty four. I think this was thirty shows ago. La- I think, yeah, well into last year, or even yeah, the year I think before. I think it was show twenty four. Yeah, show twenty four, um, which you can find on uh, on our Facebook page and on our on our website of, uh, with the hospital. Ra- well, our show page on the hospital radio website, and he says I was at Hanging Rock last weekend, so he was actually there as they prepared for the annual Valentine's Day outdoor screening of the film, which Joe spoke about when we did that. Yeah. I've been to The Rock many times and blogged the specific places in the reserve where the film scenes were made. I thought I'd share the link with you and to pass on to Joe because he sounds like he'll enjoy it. And then he says thanks for the podcast. Uh, that's, that's, that was really good, wasn't it? Some feedback. Yeah, yeah lovely. I quite liked it. So I was just sort of like, obviously, there's a bit of vanity in there going, thanks, man. That's awesome. So how did you come across the podcast? Thinking, oh, let's find out which one of the ways we put it out there's come back. And he said... Uh, he wanted something to listen to while jogging, so he searched iTunes for Picnic at Hanging Rock, and our show was one of the ones that came up. 
And I was just kind of like, well, cool. we're on iTunes. People found us. So thank you very much, David. You've made um, you've made us think it's actually worth it. Or that <laughs> nobody, I mean, we would do it if it was just us listening. But at the same time, to know that somebody else heard something makes us think, well, cool. Maybe we'll actually start speaking some sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or do a bit more preparation because people are actually coming across this thing. They've, yeah, they've listened to it year after we've done it. Goodness me. Yeah, I know. What kind of craziness is that? Um, right. So we're getting to the show now. So what we do on the show is that we uh, we have four sections of the show. The first section is a bona fide classic. We pick a bona fide classic that we say across the board. Everybody agrees. Great film. Let's talk about it. It's maybe before 1980s. Maybe people don't talk about it that much nowadays, but everybody admits great film. Then we're going to go into a patient choice, which, as I've said today, will be with Jane Marriott in the hospital. Then we have a hidden gem. Now, this is a film that one of us has seen says it's an amazing film, it's great, but it doesn't get its day in the sun. People don't talk about it that much. Most people don't even know it exists. This is our chance to sort of try and right that wrong and make sure people know how great this film is. And we shall be ending with an exception to the rule, which is where we pick a film that we say has been made after 1980, but this is a brilliant film that can stand toe-to-toe with any of the other films that we've mentioned today. So, Sharon, you have chosen our first film this today, would you like to tell us what film that is? Our bona fide classic is a film by Alfred Hitchcock, and it is The Birds from ah. 1963. Ah, now let's see. We usually play some music from the film, but I couldn't find the only music I could find for The Birds was just a whole bunch of people doing their own scorings and their own interpretations of a certain yeah. scenes. So instead, we're just going to play this. <laughs> Yes, the theme tune for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which I think is actually quite apt because I think Alfred Hitchcock as a movie maker is probably the person who has appeared the most on this show. He keeps yes. coming back. We've spoken about more Alfred Hitchcock movies than we've spoken about any other filmmakers. Well, movie. And yeah, that's, almost and the, his whole canon you could talk about, couldn't you? Well, yeah, pretty much, very much. I mean, he was, he, he was just... Well, the more the more we spoke, speak with them on the show, and the more that we actually talk about them, I, the more I begin to think uh, he's a bit unparalleled. <laughs> he yeah. really, especially when we spoke about the trouble with Harry a couple of weeks ago, and it turns out that he's not just like you know a thriller guy. He can do comedy. He could he yeah. can do all out comedy. <laughs> so um, yeah, but the birds, the birds. Yes, it's interesting what you said about not being able to find anything about the score for it. I when I did some research on this i think most of the the background noises you hear are bird sounds yes and they use them to build tension and yes. they odd. so i don't think they actually had any orchestration in the film it was all natural sounds through most of it that's why now you yes that's it that's why i couldn't find any music yeah I, because one of, i actually have it down as a note that you know usually at the oscars oscars are upon us and they always have an oscar for sound editing and yes. stuff like that and they and you don't. You never really understand why, but this is a film I was watching, and I was thinking, "Oh my god, the sound editing on this film is amazing." Yeah. And the the sound editing because there's well, I, because I I'm a video producer, so I and I think many people don't really notice these things. You, yeah, you notice these things, and many people don't really realize how much sound helps hold a like be it a TV show or a film or something that you're watching, sound really knits it together a lot more than people think. Yes. And you you notice because obviously in The Birds, they are, it obviously was made in what, the 60s? Yeah. So the effects are not, they're like, essentially there's some of them that look shoddy. 
yes. that look shoddy compared to what we expect nowadays. But what still make? But this film, it's a testament to the amount of storytelling and the filmmaking that it still works. Yes, it still works, and I think the sound is a huge, huge yeah. part of that. It's how you can make natural sounds sound frightening. Yeah, thing is that when you go out, go for a walk, you go, oh, lovely bird song. This turns bird song into <laughs> something that creates tension. Yeah, and fear. Yeah, and yeah, when it heightens, it's all these natural sounds and sounds of pecking that you oh, wouldn't have think has been Lord. so terrifying, but just this pecking noises and ah, yeah. these screechy noises build the tension to it. Okay, so okay, let's just take a step back. For some people who might not know about the birds or haven't seen the birds like me until two hours ago, what is it about? What is it about? As an introduction, it is loosely, very loosely based on a short story by Daphne du Maurier. Ah. So she is like the mistress of suspense in her own right. Yeah. But I'll say very loosely, because if you read the book, it has no, there's no resemblance to the film <laughs> other than it's about nasty birds. Yeah. But basically, it's a story of a man and a woman, Tippi Hedren and Rod Taylor, the actors who play the lead characters. And you, the scene opens up with Tippi Hedren going into a pet shop. Um, she wants to buy a gift for someone and the guy who's in there she mistakes him for someone who works there but he instantly recognised her as being one of these like champagne socialites who's always in the gossip columns for doing outrageous things for having more money than sense basically yeah, pretty much so Paris he, Hilton yes yeah. so she plays a bit of a trick on actually he plays a bit of a trick on her by pretending that yeah he's a member of staff there yeah. and she soon finds out and they have this little bit of a battle of wits and she says right I'm going to teach him that you know I'm more than just this bird brain yeah um, of a woman so she decides to buy some birds and to take them to his home yeah as a, as a pair trick on him so she heads up north of San Francisco which is where the scene sets and she takes these little pair of lovebirds with her and as she goes up nothing untoward happens and as she goes towards the house to drop these birds off she's attacked by a seagull yeah no explanation just she's rowing across the lake and or the bay and the seagull attacks her yeah and then from that point on things begin to escalate in terms of tension and what goes on and yeah it basically is about how it, uh, over the course of like one weekend they go from what should have been like a, a, a funny way of meeting someone and teaching him a lesson and playing a joke on him turns into this ordeal where yeah. the bird nation basically turns on humanity in random ways it's everything from chickens to your seagulls to your your yeah. blue tits they all turn on mankind yeah, because it's quite funny because for the first 50 minutes, it's pretty much a romance movie. Yes, you for, think that's where it's going. Yeah, for for the first 50, it's pretty much like, it's like kind of a romance movie, a bit like a romantic comedy. You have your meet cute and then you yeah. have your sort of like battle of the wits and everything like that. And, and it's a pretty effective romance movie at that, the first 50 minutes of this yeah. film. And, it, and there's little sort of like, you know, say foreshadowing, little things of like, oh, there might be something to come. But then when, like, no, then it becomes almost like a series of set pieces. Yes. Series of set pieces of just these birds attacking. Okay, there's going to be where they attack the school and then the petrol station and then this. The birthday party. Oh, the birthday party is horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it starts off small and then it builds up and you don't know quite where it's going to end up. Yeah. But it, you can feel the tension cranking. But I think what is noticeable about it is these, as you say, these set pieces. Yeah. You get these vignettes where, I think, is it the, is the well, the, the first of all, the, the, the chickens are all off their feed. And that's how yeah. it starts, where she's the mother of Rod Taylor's character. Yeah. Is saying, you know, these chickens are off the feed. It must be something wrong with the feed. Because I'm going to go to my next door neighbour and I'm going to see 
if he's if he's having the same problem with his chickens. So she no everything is at this point you've only had like one incident with the seagull. So she's driving quite happily into the neighbor's house and then you see this scene of absolute horror. Yeah. Where there's dead, dead birds, birds broken windows place. and you and you you're walking with her. You first of all you see bird on the floor, broken window feathers and you're thinking, Oh this is not looking very good and then you come round a corner and then you get a flash of something horrible and then you get a like this yeah. extreme close up of a man who's just been pecked to death yeah the, the funny thing is because with that bit uh, just just because there's essentially three crash zooms or, yeah. or three three cuts of like each one is progressively closer to this man's face and his like you know the the birds have pecked his, pecked his eyes out pecked his eyes out essentially and it's the kind of thing where it, you know you're saying about no incidental in any other film it would have, it would have been like a dun, dun, yeah. dun, but this is just <laughs> silent yes there's no music to build to it's yeah yeah and then it's just her breathing isn't it and his and the and it's the, the what she sees you see it in the same way that yeah. you have a quick look and then you get another look and then she you see her reeling in horror and then stumbling out of the house yeah and then going back and then you get these other bits where the birds then start attacking where people are gathering so you get the birthday party and then you get the the go to the school oh the school oh well that's i think one of that is one of the images isn't it of the schoolyard yeah. well if you can visualize like this playground this frame this climbing frame yeah and She's gone to the school to say to battle with the children, saying that, you know, we've had this incident. We think, you know, you should call off school early. We're a bit worried about what's going on here. And she gets there. And she looks at the window and there's like one crow on the climbing frame. Then she's chatting. She looks back and there's sort of a four or five. And then she turn away and then you look again and you couldn't. There's not a spare inch left on the frame. There's hundreds of these head big Black sinister looking crows. black crows well, I don't know if they're ravens cause I think yeah the crows are ravens because they're, they're black all over aren't they yeah and then they're thinking my golly <laughs> what's gonna... these and they were just like it was like a massed rank of arm an army of birds there yeah and, and I think I think that scene that scene I think is it's because one of the things someone asked me like you know what makes Hitchcock so great and I think it's because for him film was always psychological and he understood like how what psychologically how to put you off kilter yeah so even that senior talk i think is a master class of editing the way it's done where she sits down she takes out a cigarette and then you you then you have a close-up on her yes then you have like a shot of the climbing frame and then all of a sudden this bird flies in from the corner of him and lands on the frame yeah and then it goes back to her she's smoking and you're like and things even though I've seen this I hadn't seen this film but I'd seen that scene before. Yes. I knew what was coming and I still kind of jumped when this bird, this bird flew flew in. I was yeah. like, oh, oh my god, there's a bird. And then And she, don't you track but, one bird? Don't you see one bird flying in and well, then you're yeah, following well, it and then you suddenly yeah. go, Wah! Yeah, because they keep they, they so he so sets this thing up where he's like he shows you her face for like yeah. maybe about five seconds, then climbing frame. Then you see one bird. Her face for another five seconds. She's still smoking a cigarette. Then it goes back to climbing frame. And then there's now like four or five birds. Her face, there's a little bit more. Her face, a little bit more. Then it goes to her face for a longer period of time. And all the while, while he's focused on her face, you're thinking, what's going on behind her? What's, what's going on behind yeah. her? And then you see her look up and she sees a bird. And then yeah. you see her, her gaze and she tracks this bird. As this bird flies all the way across the field of vision. And she follows it and it goes and it joins the birds behind. And that's when you see that this. the entire playground is just covered with these black birds. Yeah. And, and so you, you see it as she sees it. And you're like, oh my God. You do, you just recoil and you think... 
their children in there. And then they sort of do like a fire alarm or something. Then they say, right, we're going to do fire drill. Yeah. We're going to leave the school. Yeah. But don't make any noise. And you think, and then they start attacking. And you that there's a horror about being attacked by a bird. I think. Yeah. Which I I think what he taps into really well, doesn't it? That primal fear. That birds are almost like aliens, aren't they? They're just. They can be sinister. They can be lovely, but they can also be sinister. But because they've got the claws, they've got the beaks. Yeah. And I think he even and does that because I think every now and then in Hitchcock movies, he seems to have a character who's chucked in there yeah. mainly to say what he thinks. And it's there's there's the there's the ornithologist lady yes. who sort of like starts saying, well, birds, birds have been around for millions yeah. of years. Do you realize that um, the birds in the in in the earth like outnumber human beings by like, you know, by something like 50 to 1 or something? Yes. And she essentially reels off all these numbers that essentially says, if birds attack, we've had it. We wouldn't stand a chance. <laughs> we, yeah. We've had it. And so I think that, that character, because she shows up for one scene, she reels off all these things about birds and it's, and it, it just gets into that. It's the whole idea of why are they attacking it? Nobody knows. No one, and you never and, find out. Yeah, you never find out why they attack, and it's almost as if saying, "Oh, this is it's nature turning against humans." And when nature turns against humans, what are you gonna do? Throw your hands up yeah. and just go. We've had it. And again, the way I don't talk. Well, it's not a spoiler because it's been out for fifty years. Yeah. But when they at the end, it you don't get your happily ever after. No. Some of them survive, and they get in the car and they drive off, and then you hear on the radio. Oh, there's been reports of birds attacks in Bodega Bay. Yeah. And also in, and it's other towns. And you yeah. think, crikey, if it is, you know, the worm has turned, the bird has turned, then... Yeah, it is, It is. you know, because in Bodega Bay, which is the place, you almost find, a, it's almost as if the birds have come back and they've gone, right, we own this place, get out. Yes. <laughs> we're starting here. This is our beachhead almost. We're yeah. landing here and then we're going to... We're gonna take we're, the we're gonna, we're gonna take the world. The world is ours. We were here before you, humans. But uh, but I think it's uh, you know as I said I've oh, I really really like this film. I think it's yeah. just it's just a masterclass of suspense and it's a masterclass of taking everyday because there's some films and nowadays especially like either it be a disaster film or like a suspense movie where you feel that it's kind of quite forced. Yes. Like they're trying to force the situations and they're trying to contrive all these things and. But I, this film, I think, just flows. And you think, oh, yeah, if if birds did attack, it would be total carnage. People wouldn't know what would happen. People would just sort of, like, leave, like, you know, a fuel line on the floor. And somebody wouldn't realize because he hasn't seen the bird or anything. And, it's, and I think it, it's... I've, I love it when films remain true to their own internal logic. Yeah. And this definitely does that. It says, okay, if birds attack, then this is what happens. Yeah, and they don't. They won't ever give us an explanation mm-hmm. because it's not the nature of. And it's not our like we can, it's not like we can con, 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 we can communicate with them. No, so why you can't just sum it up and say, "Well, this is why they're doing this." Blah blah blah. blah. No, no, no. You'd never get an explanation if yeah. nature turned. Yeah. So it doesn't try to explain it. It just says, it just presents it as it is. This is happening. Mm-hmm. How would you you have to put yourself in that situation? Okay, how would I cope? Would I barricade myself in? Would I go out there with me? shotgun and try to blast them out of the air <laughs> I'm surprised nobody did that <laughs> no they don't do that do they they're all about taking a defensive action aren't yeah. they almost they're yeah. like saying okay they're on the attack we have to just defend ourselves or try to hide yeah and not aggravate them <laughs> but yeah it works for me it's just it's a premise in, in that shouldn't work almost it's like we've seen recent films like The Happening wasn't it where oh, yeah. the trees and nature turn on people and it sort of falls flat almost. Yeah. Whereas this completely doesn't. It's a similar premise. It's but it this completely I, I think, works. And I think that just comes down to the filmmaking. I think. Yeah. I think this is where the technical things. I think it's the lighting, the sound guys, 
the editing, Hitchcock knowing exactly what he was doing and knowing how to mess with you. It, I think it all just came together in this film. And I, I, I really, really, not that it doesn't come together in other Hitchcock movies, but in this film is one in which I think yeah. it really shows because these are situations that you would think, oh, this is a bit silly. The premise is a bit silly or something. Yeah. Yeah, you can see that um, the effects that they had to use with the birds, and you can see like sometimes the birds aren't in the same place as the people are. No, they're flailing but, their arms about, and you think, yeah, yeah, you're yeah probably there's nothing there. Yeah, they think that they're flailing around nothing. But the way they mix it with when they actually grab a bird, and you're thinking, wait a second, yeah. how, how, how did that just happen? And so they, 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 I think it's a very effective suspension of disbelief in this film. Definitely. So, um, and there's a scene where her hand isn't she getting pecked? Yeah. by a hand and you can see you can see like lo- uh, yeah, more blood showing it, up as yeah. the pecking continues I, yeah, I, just, I love the bit where they're in the living room and it's all barricade and you can just hear the pecking, the pecking. on the outside the pecking 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 I mean I got here earlier today and you know we have a whole bunch of seagulls just yes that, they could, live around the hospital don't they yeah and I could hear them outside the window and I was like huh? <laughs> <laughs> I've done that thing where I've gone for a walk and you look and you're just going la 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 lovely nature and then you look and then you see this whole row of birds on a fence staring at you <laughs> and you get that bird's moment where you think oh <laughs> they're stalking me but <laughs> <You're> like, uh... <laughs> but this film yeah this sort of film resonates it's really good oh, oh and uh, okay we don't have that much time but I think that there, were, there were things in it that he did like the 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 relation the, the little quick word about the performances yes I think this film reminded me about why I love Rod Taylor so much yeah like, he is almost the perfect leading man in this isn't he yeah he is I mean from the moment he walks into the bird scene I was like oh my god I haven't seen Rod Taylor in a movie for ages I love that guy and I think the the relationship uh, Tippi Hendren as well is brilliant in it I mean I think she plays it she, I think she was perfectly because this was her screen debut. Yes, and I think she was just perfectly cast in this. You have Jessica Tandy as the the mo- mother, as the mother, yeah. and Jessica Tandy, like the relationship between her and the son. There's elements of the relationship, the mother son relationship in Psycho. <laughs> yes, it? where you think is she a bit too close? She's yeah. a bit too possessive of her son. Yeah, she? It, it's and it's it's kind of I, I think it's quite funny because you have like you know Hitchcock had his things that he kept going back to, and I think mothers was one of them because yeah. he had. There was something with with his relationship yeah. with his mother. Because his kept... ex-girlfriend is Piers and she says, you know, your biggest rival is not me. Your it's, biggest rival is, is your, his mother. Is his mum. Oh, and his ex-girlfriend played by Susan Plachet. So, yeah, beautiful oh. lady. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, anyway, great film. Great film. And it's it, it's almost kind of, it's one of those ones. I've had it, I've had the DVD for years and I haven't actually watched it. Thank you very much for choosing it, Sharon, because I got to watch it today. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> okay, and now, we, as you can tell, we could probably talk about that for ages because there's a whole bunch of stuff we haven't said about the birds. But now it's time to go into the hospital. And uh, once again, hello, Jane. <laughs> so we went to Alveston, our pet ward, and had a word with Jane, Jane Marriott, uh, um, today. Speaking to her, so I essentially asked her to tell us the story of the first time she went to the cinema. Now, Jane turned the table on us a little bit, and this is what she actually decided to talk about instead. So, okay. yeah, sorry, you've just never told us your name. Okay. And, and then tell us the story of the first film you went to see in the cinema. Okay, I can tell you the first scary film. My name's Jane Marriott. Hi. Um, the first scary film I ever went to see at the cinema was The Ex- Exorcist, um, which at 
absolutely frightened the life out of me. It was bad enough while I was in there, but coming out was even worse. I think it must have taken two nights before I could sleep properly after, after watching it. So, and I was with uh, was a, a few of us, and when we come out, we were standing at the bus stop waiting to go, and one of them could mimic the voice. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it was horrible. Uh, well, that was my first scary movie. So, um, I can't actually remember a movie that... At that time, there must have been loads that I went to see, but I can't actually remember many of uh, the other ones, but that one will always stay with me, that that was the scariest movie of all. So, uh, yeah. Was that Thank okay? you so much. That's awesome. <laughs> that was scary. I watch it now and think, oh, it's pathetic. <laughs> so so you're saying you watch it now again, Anne? Yeah, and now, now I watch it and look at it and think, oh, my God, you know, why was I so scared in the first place? But I think it was hyped up so much. And there was this this whole thing around it. I think they had um, St John's Ambulance in the, um, oh, yeah, in the, the cinema as well, yeah, just in case anybody needed to or fainted. Or whatever. So, yeah, it was, um, but now, you know. 40-odd years on, you sort of think, why on earth did I worry about that film? <laughs> I've got to be honest with you, I still find it pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, it is, yeah, it's still got its parts, isn't it? But, yeah, not as bad, I think, now as I thought it was then, so. <laughs> okay, that's about enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> be freaking people out in the hospital. Yeah, no, freaking people out of the hospital. I, was, uh, I hope Jane hasn't stopped listening. <laughs> but because I mean that that is an iconic, iconic piece of music. It is. Like the second you hear that, you just immediately get this image of this priest with a fedora standing outside this yeah, building the lamp with, light. The, with a lamp and everything like that, just coming down on him. That's from William Friedkin's. What was it? Nineteen eighty? Was it? I thought it was before then. Okay, 70, it was 70-something, wasn't it? I thought it? it was the 70s, okay. baby. Yeah, The Exorcist, in which, uh, in which a young girl slowly gets possessed by some demon of some, well, Egyptian origin or something like that. Yeah, the beginning she of the says f- Legion, doesn't she, at one point? Aren't we Legion? Well, th- to be honest with you, this is a film that I have resolutely avoided. So, yeah. <laughs> so I know a lot about it. I've seen quite a bit about it. I've seen like you know, the final scene where there is some kind of victory. Yes. But je- largely speaking, I've avoided The Exorcist because I remember seeing this as a kid and growing up in Nigeria. So growing up as a Christian kid in Nigeria where we are quite into our spiritual things and quite into like, you know, the different forces and everything like that. The Exorcist was just like an it was just like a heavily, heavily scary film. Yeah, and you'd... different from most of the other scary films that we saw around that time because the good guys don't really win. No, it's left. No, because the, the because you know the, the the character who is supposed to represent good and yeah. God and everything else in the film yeah doesn't survive the he, film. He doesn't. He doesn't. And so and it was and I think especially growing up in Nigeria where you had the whole. Where there's a, a real kind of sense of, uh, or a, yeah, you know, we're Christian and all that kind of stuff. And, and you're essentially saying, yeah, this is a guy who represents the church and represents God. And he kind of dies because he, he didn't have enough to defeat the devil. Yeah, the devil so, possessed him and then he threw himself down the stairs. So it's like a priest kills himself to kill a demon. That's yeah. the only way you can get rid of a demon. Yeah, so, so I you're think. You're going, whoa. 
I think I think oh, so so yeah so I've, I've avoided it but I know obviously there's some things you just cannot avoid because it's such an iconic film yes and Linda Blair obviously yeah. you, you can visualize her it doesn't matter how if you've seen it once you've seen it a hundred times or you've only seen a clip of it everyone can visualize her when she's sort of being tormented yeah yeah when she and when her face goes all kind of like Green, well, cockmacked and yeah. green, and has like holes in it. And you she's can rotting, see. isn't she? She's yeah. like decomposing. Yeah, and as this, in, this little girl. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing as well. Is because I, even when I was looking up, you see some clips of her early in the film, and she is this sweet little girl. And the fact that by the end of the film, you've forgotten what she's like. Yes, you've forgotten what Regan looks like. You've forgotten yeah. it because all you have is this thing that throws up on priests and swears at them. The language, and, yeah, that oh, comes out of her mouth, and you yeah. think. Uh, and the voice, like what? you know, you know what Jane was saying yeah. about one of her friends being Could able do to the do demon the voice. voice. I'm like, oh, that's just mean. <laughs> that's... Especially you're waiting for the bus, and it's probably you're not. You're waiting for the bus. It's a night time. You just watch the... the Exorcist, and then someone comes up and starts doing that voice. Can do the. <laughs> I can't do the voice. You'd, you'd be pleased to know. <laughs> uh, I don't even want to do it. I don't even. Want it. But but I mean, when you think about it, there's just there's okay. Obviously, there's a throwing up. There's a projectile vomiting scene. Yeah. There's the levitating out of the bed scene. Yeah. There's the walking backwards, like crab walking crab down walking. the stairs. There's the um. Well, there's the there's a three sixty head. The floor. Yeah. There's, weasel over the floor. There's the yeah weasel over the floor. There's the three sixty heads. There's doing yeah. something nasty with a crucifix. So <laughs> it's so how we're talking about the birds and we're talking about it being like a s- series of um of. Or set pieces. Set pieces, yeah. That set escalate pieces. as you go along. Yeah, and I think the exercise is kind of like that as well, in that it sort of like flows from one thing and then one thing flows into the next thing and flows into the next thing. It flows into... So it flows as a film and it works really well as a film. And I think Friedkin, uh, I know he never, it's arguable that he didn't really hit this heights again, although he did the French connection. Yes, he again, did... a completely different type of tone and totally different film. type of film. But this is this is a film in which I think he just tapped into something psychological and he knew yes. this is almost sometimes I wonder when somebody makes something like that, whether they just sit down there and they go, yep, that's it. This is going to be freaking people out for 50 years. And yes. long, long after I'm gone, people are still going to be talking about this film. Because yeah, I do remember the reports of when it came out that, yeah, people were fainting and being sick. Mm. And it was truly shocking for lots of people at the time. Yeah. I think it's still shocking now if you watched it. I think the fact that you're, it's a real child actress because often yeah. you now I think we've become used to the fact that nowadays they tend to use older actors and like, and you know sort of yeah who who just look young who just look young. Mm-hmm. But this was a real child who was doing these things. Mm. I think we'd probably feel slightly uncomfortable. Well, we do. You do feel uncomfortable watching it. You do. It. Yeah, you feel uncomfortable watching it and. Not just because of what's portrayed, but the fact that this is a child who is actually going through all this and it's almost yeah. a form of abuse, the fact that she's having to go through that. I think she's been on record to say that she found it did change her whole childhood being in this film. Well, I think it changed her whole life because yeah. that's that's what people know her for. <laughs> Forevermore, she's going to be uh, Linda Blair. Linda Blair, possessed girl. the girl, girl from The Exorcist. Yeah. Oh, and uh, and because I haven't seen her in much else, but the one thing I did see her in was in a film called Repossessed. Yes, yeah, a comedy, wasn't which, it? Which is a it's a spoof comedy, and it's spoofing The Exorcist. And they have her show up in the film alongside Leslie Nielsen. And obviously, I think once you put Leslie Nielsen in the movie, I just think, yeah, yeah that's that's just hilarious. <laughs> I mean, Leslie Nielsen's in the film; it's funny already. And um, yeah, and and had her back in it, so it it did sort of change the course of her life. I think. Yeah. She could. She probably couldn't get a normal job because someone would be like, Linda Blair. That's uh, that's like the name of the girl who was in The Exorcist. Yes, I know. It is it's The Exorcist girl. Uh oh. But I as know. a first scary film, gosh, that would that sets the bar high, doesn't it? It does. It sets the bar. I mean, I think if 
for me, that's a kind of scary film that if that was the first one I saw, I would just not watch any scary film anymore. Actually, no. I don't really watch scary films, so maybe it did have that effect. <laughs> I, I do and I don't. It's I think the, the way scary films have gone over the last few years, you can almost divide them into, I regard them as like horror, and then you've got what has been called torture porn. <laughs> oh, yeah, good God. The saw, the sort of human centipede, the... Uh, oh, please These stop. hostile type things. <laughs> those, I don't regard those as horror. I regard those being horrible. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And I don't go there. Yeah. But I quite like my vampires, my zombies, my other... Those sort of horror films, I quite like. Yeah. But I, so I'm probably, I don't know if you'd class me as a horror fan, but I'd love The Walking Dead and I love... Yeah, I love your zombie stuff. My zombie stuff, yeah. <laughs> George Romero. So I suppose I do like horror, but I, I'm selective about what I like. All right. But I do remember seeing this as a child and being, I was probably too young to watch it and it did freak me out as well a little bit. <laughs> I've got older brothers, so my I, brothers who were in their teenagers when I was sort of like 10 or 11, they would put the film on and I'd sit and watch it and it'd be like, oh, I was a 10 year old to be watching The Exorcist. Yeah. So the thing is, as, as much as I do not like scary movies, I have to admit, I do think The Exorcist is a classic. Yes. I think the fact is, it's been out for so long and there hasn't been any film in that kind of genre that even comes close. No. I think people have tried to ape it and I think sometimes people just very wisely realise it's not it's not worth it trying to ape it. Let's just forget about it and go no. home. And I think you can put this in the category like with Amityville Horror, the first one. Mm-hmm. It has it reaches those same notes. I don't think they've, they've made many, many Amityville type yeah. films since. But the first one, I think, is the only one that would compare in terms of freaking people out yeah. to The Exorcist. Yeah. And again, that's of a similar time. It was made at a similar time. Yeah, I think seventies horror is actually is is weird because seventies horror. It, when by the time it got to the eighties horror, it seemed like eighties horror just became I don't know horrible and slasher and all that yes, kind of stuff. They became but, you know, Freddy Krueger appeared, didn't he? Well, yeah, and and even he in his first uh, his first film was really good. But seventies horror was actually more like art. It yes. was kind of like the, all these filmmakers were asking. What is actually scary? Yeah, and how how do we tap into that? Again, it does it taps into yeah. what is a human fear. Yeah. So, so and so for me, I think uh, I think that is actually justifiable as art. But, but it got to the point where it just became popcorn horror for horror's sake, yeah. isn't it? It's just yeah. gore for yeah. And and I'm not a big fan yeah. of that. No. But. Jane, thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> Jane, thank you very much. For, she's an exorcist. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. Some of us might not be sleeping that well tonight. <laughs> if you play that music again, no one will be sleeping in the yeah, hospital. Yeah, no, we're, we're not going back there. We're leaving, we're leaving that music well out of it. And right, so thank you very much for joining us on the show today, Jane. And um, yeah, hope you can hope you enjoy the rest of it. And now we get onto this section of the show where we talk about a hidden gem, a film that is great, is amazing, is wonderful, but not many people have seen it. And this week, I get the rare choice. Hey. I, I, I get the rare chance, the, the rare privilege to actually pick what the hidden gem is. And this is a film that I have loved for ages called A Letter to Three Wives. Now, I've never heard of it. Yep, I I don't think anybody has. I I this was one of this is what I call it was a film for find. One of those things where it's randomly on and then you just switch it and go what the heck and you just start watching it and after by the time it finished I was like, whoa. Yeah, why don't what, I know this film? What is yeah. what is this? Why 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 have I not heard about this film? This film's amazing. Now a couple of headline things. This is directed by the same guy who directed All About Eve, okay. Joseph L. Mankiewicz, and I think this film is a bit. 
And I think, well, you say I've gone a bit uh, evangelical about this, so I brought you a DVD today. I should be watching that. Start to watch it Uh, in a second. I'll let you have it. Oh yeah, I'm not going to touch it yet. Yeah, uh, yeah. I can't. I can't just. I can't just let go of it just like that. (laughs) And I think it's a bit overshadowed by All About Eve because All About Eve was the year after this. It was the year, and that was the one that went on with like you know your Bette Davis and everything like that, and Marilyn Monroe, one of her early screen appearances. And I think this one was forgotten about, but it's such a great film. And what I've put together is a little couple of clips about from the film to help you understand what the film's all about. Okay. So it kicks off, and it kicks off with a voiceover. And the voice, this is what the voiceover tells you about the film, about the setting, and about what it's all about. To begin with, all the incidents and characters in this story might be fictitious. And any resemblance to you or me might be purely coincidental. The name of the town isn't important. It's the one that's just 28 minutes from the big city. 23 if you catch the morning express. It's on a river, and it's got houses and stores and churches and a main street. Nothing fancy like Broadway or Market, just plain Maine. Drug, dry goods, shoes, those horrible little chain stores that breed like rabbits. Also a street for the upper, the exclusive of the town, where the country club set live when they're not at the country club. This is the first Saturday in May, and tonight the first dinner dance of the country club season. Well, anyway, this house belongs to Brad and Deborah Bishop, two of my dearest friends. Brad bought this house before he went to war. It was Brad who gave me my first black eye and and my first kiss. Well, when he came home from the war, he came home with a wife, Deborah. So she didn't marry her childhood... Okay, sorry. So she didn't marry her childhood sweetheart? Yeah, so you start off and you have this um, narrator... Who didn't marry her childhood sweetheart? Who did it? Who had this person? But he went off for the war and he came back and he came comes back with a wife. GI bride? Yeah. Well, well, it kind of is a bit like that. Like they met in the services and everything like that. And so after this, you meet Brad and Deborah. So it's actually Brad and Deborah and the and so it sets up the scene that you know they're the sort there's of country, a history. There's but it's even the the society is like country club types and all that kind of stuff. The first dance of the dinner dance season. Okay. These are the kind of people that have a dinner dance season. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, um, so th- then you meet Brad and Deborah and you, you realize that with Brad and Deborah, uh, so Deborah's, is not from this sort of high society place. She, she grew up on a farm somewhere like Oklahoma or something okay. like that. So there's this kind of, um, thing that goes on and you, you hear she's talking to Brad and Deborah talking Brad's going away on a he says he's packed his bag but he's going away on a, sh- on a trip and he's going to be away for the dance this evening and so she'll have to go without him and she's saying she doesn't want to go without him and then they start talking about a character called Addie Ross and it, it they start talking about a character called Addie Ross and she, she's she essentially accuses Brad of wanting her wanting her to be like this Addie Ross person and wanting wanting her to wear a dress that Addie Ross wore to a previous function and and it, and so that's ends and then Deborah walks out of the Deborah leaves the house and after that Deborah leaves the house and then goes off and gets into a car and drives off and this is what happens with the narrator as Deborah walks out of the house she won't stay mad at him long she's too much in love Pretty soon she'll be full of self-reproach. <laughs> Women are so silly. Now this is that street where people on the way up and on the way down live alongside each other for a while. Rita and George Phipps are on their way up. That is, if Rita has her way. And that's the only way she'll have any part of, thank you. There she is now, ready and waiting. That's Rita. 
You're late. I won't be a minute. Just one last look at the twins, and I've got to give Sadie your check. On behalf of the underprivileged children in this town, I'd like to thank you overprivileged ladies for sharing your excess privileges with us. Odd looking about you today, George. Just that usual two-headed school teacher look. You're all dressed up. Saturday, no school, and you're all dressed up. Just my little old blue serge. First Saturday of trout season, too. Brad says ever since you were big enough to lift the fish. Listen closely. Can you hear the grateful murmur of the trout as they whisper in the brooks and streams? This is what they whisper. Phipps will not fish today. <laughs> you're cute. But why? Right, so mm -hmm. so you meet Rita and George. So uh, so Deborah has a t discussion with them. It turns out that um, George he says and the answer to that question that she asked about why he says because I've got something better to do today. So you've met um, Brad and Deborah. Um, Brad is off on a trip. George is wearing a suit for some weird reason. And says I'm I've got something better to do today. And then after this, you have um, uh, Deborah and Rita in the car, and it shows out. It turns out that. Deborah, uh, Rita, and George have been fighting about something and everything. Okay. But so that's what you have. And then the next bit, it goes on to them in the car. The radio hasn't been fixed yet. Oh, they've just gone on the air. Oh, well, save myself listening to the murder of my little brain child. Rita, why on earth do you do it? Five of those radio programs every week up until dawn, almost every night. Because each week I receive in return 100 pieces of what Addie Ross calls the most restful shade of green in the world. Unquote. Addie again. Why is it that sooner or later, no matter what we talk about, we wind up talking about Addie Ross? Maybe it's because if you girls didn't talk about me, you just wouldn't talk at all. <laughs> That's right. I'm Addie. I'm the one they just can't help talking about. My very dearest friends, too. You know, I wonder if she knows how much we do talk about her, and what we say, and how we feel about her. I know. Believe me, I do. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter nearly as much as what all of you don't know yet. Whoa. I know. I know. I'm intrigued already. I know. And so it turns out that the narrator is Addie Ross, who's been telling you this story. Is She is this Addie Ross that you find out that um, Brad, Deborah's husband, was the first person who ever kissed her. It was like childhood sweetheart and everything like that. Um, Rita works in radio. And so that's where she, that's where she's trying to ch check out one of her radio shows. And she says, like, my brainchild's been killed. Because obviously this is in the period where people didn't have TVs at their home. No, so you listened to the serials on the radio. Yeah, so they listened to the serials on the radio. And that was the whole thing. And there's a there's a hefty bit of satire. There's a really, really funny scene later on where they talk about radio and what radio has become, which can very easily be translated to today's, to today's world. I was actually going to do a stage adaptation of this at some point. And this whole thing was going to be about reality TV because everything they talk about radio and the way it's used and everything like that can be... Uh, can be applied to reality TV nowadays, and how I think it's it's just mm -hmm. really really clever. It's because it's uh, the same way all about Eve is a bit of a satire about the theater world. Yeah, I think he brings out his satire knives and goes for radio and goes for the way people go about selling things here in in this film or this bit. So, but that is that is another bit of the film that comes up later. And so now we had this. We've met these two. So we've met two wives. Yes. So there's a third, and that's Lorna May. Lorna May. We don't get like an intro like that. We just when we see Lorna May first, Lorna May is just standing waiting for the other two. Well, actually, she's waiting for the other three because she's waiting for Rita. She's waiting for Deborah. And she's also waiting for Addie Ross to right. come meet her, because on this first day of the dinner dance season, they're about to go on a boat and take a whole bunch of underprivileged kids. 
and take them to an island somewhere for a day out. Okay. So that's that's what they're about to that's what they're about to do. So we go on to the next bit of my of my essay on <laughs> a letter to three wives. This is what happens next. Um where they they meet up with Lona May. They're like, where's Addy? They're like, oh, nobody's seen Addy. We haven't found her. I went to her house, but nobody was there. The car wasn't there. Nothing like that. So they're standing there waiting by the boat. And then a postman shows up. And this happens. I got a letter for the Mesdames. Bishop, Hollingsway, and Phipps. From the dear departed, I'll bet. Addie's so tactful. She even put this in alphabetical order. Open it up. No, let's wait. But what? Till we get back. Knowing Addie, I mean, why let her spoil our day? Not my day. Addie Ross never saw the day she could spoil my day. Did I put enough days into that? Dearest Debbie, Laura May, and Rita, as you know by now, you'll have to carry on without me from here. It isn't easy to leave a town like our town to tear myself away from you three dear, dear friends who've meant so much to me. And so I consider myself extremely lucky to be able to take with me a sort of memento, something to remind me always of the town that was my home and of my three very dearest friends whom I want never to forget. And I won't. You see, girls, I've run off with one of your husbands, Addie. Well, if that's her idea of a joke, she's extremely she's poor taste. If I ever catch say. up with that character, I'll... And so, and that is the setup of the film. So, yeah, meow. So She's that, a homewrecker. Yeah, so that all <laughs> happens in the first 10 minutes of the film. And so at that bit, you, so she sends, writes them the letter saying, I've run off with one of your husbands. And then they all kind of like going, oh, for goodness, this is a joke, this is a joke. And then the way you hear them all fall quiet, that's because they see a payphone. And they're all staring at the payphone. And you can think of the thinking, phone home, phone home, yeah. phone home. But then a lady comes up and says, we have to leave. The boat has to leave. So they get on the phone. They get on the boat. And there's this shot of them all just sort of like staring at the phone as it goes past. Thinking. Because they know they're going to be away for the whole day on this island somewhere. Not being able to contact. No, that's and a good head start for someone, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And no, not being able to contact. Not being able to chase anybody up. And the three of them not knowing which one of their husbands has run off with Addie Ross. And it's and so then the next the rest of the film goes into so like flashback and you see snippets of their family life with their husbands. Be it like there's um, the first night when Brad was going to introduce Deborah to the rest of his friends and Deborah's all freaked out because she doesn't know how to act in this sort of society and she's scared she's going to be an embarrassment to yeah. him. And you st- he's just that scene like it's little fissures that show up in each one of their marriages. The fact that um, George is a teacher. George is a teacher and he's like a put upon teacher because he's more of an idealistic teacher and not that worried about the money. So, but then right. Rita becomes, she's a writer and she starts writing for this radio show and she becomes really successful. And as Addie says at the beginning, she's upwardly mobile and wants to keep yeah. going. And George she's more successful than her husband. She's more successful than her husband. <sighs> That's always a source of conflict. Yeah. The, and this is, and this is like the, what was it, the 40s? In the 40s, talk- yeah, yeah, even 40s more so. We're talking about that like she's more successful than her husband. So it's, it's, it's a, it, there's, there's like, you know, issues there they meet Lorna May and her husband and Lorna May is much younger than her husband yeah, so by the way George is played by Kirk Douglas I think I just thought I'd say that wow yeah so the voice you heard when he was talking about the trout and everything that was Kirk Douglas gosh you know I didn't didn't <laughs> yeah, connect he is about the only name in this film right he's about the only name in this film and I love this film and I think a big part of it is because everybody in this film just stays preserved as their characters yes so and you I, don't have any 
things yeah, I have nothing getting else. in the way. Yeah, I haven't seen them. In, I've, I've have hardly seen anybody in this film in anything else besides Kirk Douglas. And even he, 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 he pretty much plays a supporting character because it's about the women. This yes. film is about the women. And it's... Then, yeah, so Lorna May and her husband, Parker, you found out that he, he ran... He owned the store she used to work in. And then he chased after her and everything like that. And she was kind of like, look, no, no, you're not going to get me cheap. You're not going to get me cheap. I'm not going to be one of those girls you just sort of like use and get rid of. The only thing is like, look, because she's from a very poor background. Yeah. And she's like, if I'm, it's going to be marriage. Yeah. And he said they get married, but there's still that whole thing about, is it just a business deal or do they actually? So each one, so each one of them, there's a reason why their husband might want to leave them. Yes, there could. Yeah, there's, there's yeah. a re- Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and, and that's just, that's the setup of the film, and you don't find out until the final scene of the film what happens. So the and I just I just think the film is brilliant. So it keeps you stringing you along the yeah. whole way. You heard some of the writing in there. You heard some of the writing. It's it's it was originally a cosmopolitan novel. Yeah. It was a letter to five wives. They made it three to make it a bit more. Said, otherwise, you'd be <laughs> manageable. <how many? laughs> yeah, manageable for the. For the <laughs> and it's and it's just it's just. And it it just keeps you going. Oh, what's going on? And the writing is brilliant. As you, I mean, some of the writing in there. I'm just listening to it going. Oh my word! This is just a yeah. great, great script. The writing is brilliant. The the satire you sh- when they talk about the society and they talk about the radio and they talk about what the society was like at that time and everything like that. I think is just spot on. And it is honestly one of my greatest. It's one of my favorite films. Oh wow! I, I'm I looking forward so, to watching it now. I am so so. I, I'm almost evangelical about this film that <laughs> more people need to watch this film because it's a great, great film. So with that being in mind, Sharon, I shall hand you I my shall, yes. one of my prize possessions. I shall rattle it. <laughs> it's in there. Yep. Yeah, that is my copy of A Letter to Three Wives. Brilliant film. Joseph L. Makiovic starring Kirk Douglas, even though he's not like really, he's the biggest name known, no, known name in it. But he that it, it's not about him. It's about the ladies who are played by, let me see, Anne Southern, Linda Darnell, and who's the third one? Jean Crane. Jean Crane. Yeah, never heard of them before, but brilliant film. Absolutely brilliant film. So with that being said, I'm just going to play some music now from the intro music from A Letter to Three Wives, which kicks off the whole thing. So it's kind of like, you know, it's a 20th century Fox thing. So you have the... Then this happens. Yes, and that is the opening music for The Letter to Three Wives. Please, please go find this film and watch it because it's so, so, so good. And now I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop overhyping it. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try and. Well, okay. the CDs, the DVDs in my possession now. Yes. I'm watching that this weekend. I'm gonna try and like distance myself from this film and talking about how great this film is and how I can't believe that I hadn't, I'd never heard of it before I saw it. Um. Yes, and we're going to go into the section of the show called The Exception to the Rule. So this is a section of the show where we try and pick a film that is that flies in the face of a titular rule. A titular rule being they don't make them like they used to. We are going to show you a film that was made after 1980, which we can say, yes, actually, they do sometimes every now and then. The sun shines and they do make them a bit like they used to. And the film that I've chosen today is a film called Robert and Frank. Mm-hmm. which is a film starring uh, Frank Langella. As I think we were speaking about it, about how 
he's a character who just seems to have been old forever. Yes, he's been old for 40 years, isn't he? <laughs> so, <laughs> he's yeah. been old longer than he was young. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah he, he's a bit like Malcolm McDowell in that. In yeah. that. Because Malcolm McDowell, I always used to think, I've never seen that guy. Did he ever not have white hair? <laughs> because it just seems like... He's all, yeah, he's always been... Yeah he's, yeah, he's always just been like, you know, white hair, old, wizened, kind of like yeah. wizened or uh, debonair crook. And I think like Fangela is a bit like that, but this is a bit of a different thing in that he plays he plays a a person who's he's he's kind of a retired cat burglar. But I say retired, it's more like he got caught, he was in prison and he was released. And so he lives out somewhere, like you know, sort of like a sort of rural area um by himself. But he's he's developed um some sort of degenerative disease. So either Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. I can't I can't remember which one it is, but he's developed a degenerative disease, which means that his faculties are slowly, yeah. slowly leaving him. His son, he has a daughter who travels off around the world somewhere. His son drives up every weekend to check in on him and see everything is okay. This is set in like the sort of slight future. So it's it's kind of... It's recognizable, but it's not now. It's recognizable. So there's a lot of things in it that yeah. you... That even between the time that the film was released and now is... Uh, we actually have. So things like your TV, you can have a video conversation with somebody through your TV and all that kind of stuff. That's yeah. Skype and you have Skype enabled yeah. TVs now. And so between the time the film being released and now, they've already been there. So there was things like, you know, their mobile phones are maybe a little bit thinner, just like it looks like a clear piece of plastic okay. and all that. So it's, it's lit in the, ne- in the near future. And in this near future, they essentially, imagine if Apple managed to take Siri and turn Siri from just being something that was in your phone into a robot that goes around your house and helps you. So I know like they have Amazon Echo and they have Siri and it's essentially, okay, yeah, the, the, next, next the next logical step is yeah. to have a robot who you can say, um, go make me my dinner and the robot will do that. So his son comes up and brings this robot up with him, which is like the new thing. And he says, dad, it takes me two hours to get here every week. And I've got like a young kid and I've got to be at home and all that kind of stuff. And I, I can't just keep doing it, but you need something to look after you. So he gives him this robot that, first of all, Frank doesn't like the robot. And Frank is like, oh, whatever. And he just tries to like get it out of his life. But the robot is just programmed to help him and to learn about him. And so to find it's not out. going away anywhere. So, yes, the robot's not going anywhere. The <laughs> robot just sort of stands there. And as the a doctor says... A doctor says, like, okay, it's good for people to do things that they used to do and, like, you know, just to keep the faculties going and get the memory going again. And, obviously, Frank used to be a cat burglar and he kind of has this... He has a crush on a librarian at the local library and she... The library's being shut down because somebody's going to come and turn it into a cafe or something like that. Like oh, one of these yuppie types. Yeah. yeah. And so Frank teaches this robot how to help him be a cat burglar and teaches the robot how to pick locks and teaches <laughs> the robot how to steal stuff. And it's essentially, it does this really, really sp- lovely, cute film. And you know how we were saying about like um, the birds, how it flows. Yes. It flows and one thing goes to the next and it doesn't feel forced. And none of the, none of the situations feel hackneyed or contrived. No. And this just feels really like, it's just following the characters. This is what this character would do. This guy would train this robot how to pick a lock in his skills yeah, yeah. this is my skill set i'll yeah. teach you what i know uh, and then you have this funny thing where there's a policeman that's trying to catch up with frank and it's like i know you did it oh you did it and they keep and so they're wondering how the heck did he do he's an old man he's losing his mind how does he do this thing <laughs> and he's and it's and it becomes so it's a bit of like you know a, a, a comment on society as it is at the moment with like you know how relationships come in and what points do we trust machines and how, uh, yes. how helpful the machines are, are or not? And and at the heart of it is just this sweet story about this man 
sort of like rediscovering his joy for life yeah. <laughs> through a relationship with this robot. And um, later on in the film, some developments come up and everything like that that just sort of tie everything together and just make you think this is such a lovely film. <laughs> and like most lovely, great films, a bit like Letters to Three Wives, it kind of disappeared without a trace. Yeah, sometimes they do, don't they? And you don't, I don't understand why that happens with films that yeah, deserve uh, to be remembered. It is, and it's a really, really good film. It's I would, I mean, if anybody has Netflix, it's on Netflix. Go find Robot and Frank. Remind us of the name. It, the film, the the it's called Robot and Frank. Robot and Frank. I Robot write and Frank, that down. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a great, great, great film. I love the film. I I just I love it when you have a nice, cute, totally well told story that doesn't feel pushed. Yeah. It doesn't feel pushed, doesn't feel hackneyed. It just flows and it's believable. But with an older lead guy as well, a lead yeah, and lead character, and a, and the fact that it isn't character. always about teenagers running around doing things, it's yeah. people with maturity have got a story, they've got stories to tell yeah. as well. Because, the, okay, so other, we have Frank Langella. His son is played by James Marsden. Okay, he's yeah. been in lots of things. Yeah, James Marsden. His daughter's played by Liv Tyler. Golly, so big cast then. Yeah, and, and the, the librarian's played by Susan Sarandon. Why have we not heard of this film? <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's great cast, great cast, wonderfully done. And I think whenever you have a film with a robot in it that has a, you, you've got to get the robot right. Yes. And I think the films that do this right, like Short Circuit, Wall-E, um, Big Hero 6. Yeah, you've got to give them personality, yeah, haven't one, you? Yeah, once that robot has personality and this robot has personality, it's got, it's, it's pretty much, it looks a bit like Eva from Wall-E. So it's it's sort of what essentially if Apple built a robot, okay, this, this would is be, what it would look this like. Would, yeah. This is what it would look like. But even though it's it's got like a, almost like a blank visor, it looks a bit like an astronaut. Even though it has a blank visor, there's just so much personality yes. in the robot, and the relationship between Frank and the robot is just awesome. It's just awesome. And uh, now I'm gonna play some music from Robot and Frank, and this is called "Fell on Your Head" by Francis and the Lights. I think the jauntiness of this kind of t- get, tells you a little bit about the tone of the film. Yeah, feel that jaunt. Yeah, I'm bouncing. <laughs> we'll be back in a second with um, films that we've seen in the cinema recently. We are out of time. Until next week, please do take it easy. Get well soon. Listen to your doctor. Take all your medicine. And remember that as always, they, they don't, don't make, make them, them like, like they, they used to. to.